The title of today's sermon is Scar Tissue and the Story of the Real Thomas. There's a quote I want to read by a man named Chuck Palhunik, I believe. I'm probably really mispronouncing that. In a book that he titled Diary, he says, It's so hard to forget pain, but it's even harder to remember sweetness. We have no scar to show for happiness. We learn so little from peace. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 34, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I have not come to send peace, but a sword. There's a lot to be learned from that quote and the scriptures that we're sharing with you this morning. What the spirit has for you. Um, literally, I was I had a wedding to do on Saturday in College Station, and I was driving around looking for the location of the wedding and uh, a little bit on the way home after the wedding uh, was just the spirit just giving me really the sermon uh, for this morning. Um, it's going to seem if you're up to date on, uh, I guess, my own life, like a reflection of what I'm going through. And possibly it is, but it's not the inspiration for this sermon. Literally was something that I really feel like the spirit wanted to share with Edgewater. So I don't know who it's for. But it's for somebody. Jesus said, think not that I've come to send peace on earth. I have not come to send peace, but a sword. So many times you hear celebrities, uh, whether in sports or in media or entertainment, when they're giving a speech, when they're accepting an award, especially back in the day, I guess that maybe it's not as prevalent now, but I remember growing up in the 90s, nobody could give a speech and accept an award or be in a public arena without at some point asking for world peace, world peace, world peace. They asked Miss America, what, uh, what's one thing that you want above all? I don't know what they asked her, but either way, she comes up with a, and world peace. Everybody wants world peace. And it's a great notion, and it sounds nice, and it sounds good. And as Christians, we're definitely taught, and we have it inside of us to promote peace, and world peace would be a good thing. But uh, we cannot deny the scriptures where Jesus said, peace is Peace is nice because it's peaceful. And I want you to have peace in your life. I want you to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. I want you to have peace that surpasses understanding. But I also want you to understand this. This world does not look like the world that I had it in mind to create. People do not act the way that I wish that people acted. The the kingdom and the leadership of this world is not necessarily reflective of the leadership of God. The Bible says that Satan right now is the God of this world. And if any man has is a friend with the world, he's an enemy of God. That It seems to be opposite. So he's not about this world system. And he came into the world system and he said, ultimately, yes, I'd love for you to have peace. The Bible commands us to pray for the peace of Israel, for instance. But the Bible also tells us that will never happen. So we're praying for it because it's good but with underneath understanding the idea that it's actually never going to happen because Jesus is not interested in everybody getting along, everybody shaking hands, and everybody tolerating one another and all of their beliefs and all of their ideals and all of their theology. He said the way is narrow. I hate to tell you, I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I love you to death, like really literally to death. But I got to tell you the truth. I didn't come to sit to bring peace. 
I came to bring the truth. And the truth does not always necessarily equal a peaceful situation. Because sometimes when you learn the truth, it means you are required to share the truth. And there are groups of people that don't want to hear the truth. So ultimately, yes, I want you to have peace. That's why in God, I'm speaking for God here, I created heaven. But in this life, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. We kind of understand that as a congregation, as a generation. But I want to take it even down a slightly different road, one that maybe we don't like to talk about as much, but I think ultimately one that is very encouraging. Genesis chapter 32, verse number 24. Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Verse 26. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go except you bless me. This man, as the Bible calls it, asking Jacob to let him go. And Jacob says, I'll not let you go except you bless me. And he said unto him, what is your name? This man said, and Jacob replied, my name is Jacob. And he said, your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, do you have power with God and with men and has prevailed? And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee, your name. And he said, "Uh, why would you ask after my name? And then he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him and he halted. Or if you're reading a more modern version, he limped upon his thigh. Therefore, the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. So the story begins that Jacob is wrestling with a man, but it ends with the idea that he was wrestling with God, which leaves you one character in the Old Testament that he was wrestling with, and that would be the angel of the Lord, which is understood to be true. There's a lot that goes into teaching about the angel of the Lord, and it's not the focus of today's sermon. So if you can't accept it without me giving you all the, all the necessary scriptures and details, the angel of the Lord is a theophany of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Theophany means theos, meaning God. Phony is what it sounds like it means, except without the negative connotation, which means it's a carbon copy, if you will. You do know the Bible says that Jesus Christ was crucified for me and you before the foundations of the world. You do know that Jesus Christ was preexistent before he was born uh, out of the womb of Mary. We understand that, right? So in Genesis 32, you have one instance of the angel of the Lord, which is why when Jacob asks him after his name, It's not time for him to give his name. So he says, why are you asking after my name? I can't tell you my name. That name will be given a few thousand years from now. That name will be given to a couple in Israel named Joseph and Mary. I'm not giving you my name, but I'll take your name and I'll change it. So understanding uh, what's going on in Genesis 32, I want to start back at the beginning. Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. How many of you desire really in the depth of your heart and in in the inward parts of your soul to, to gain a blessing from God. How many of you would love to be blessed? How many of you would love to be blessed with your calling? How many of you would love to be blessed 
with the design and the destiny for your life right now? How many of you would love to be able to receive from God exactly what what it is he has for you to do? Do you understand there can be so many things going on in your life that don't make any sense? The people don't make sense. The buildings don't make sense. The places don't make sense. The circumstances don't make sense. In the middle of all that, if God can show up and secure in you exactly what it is you are called to do and give you a picture of the destiny of your life and you can accept it, all of those things that don't make sense also don't matter. That's where Jacob's at. Step one, if you want to understand your calling and your destiny with God, Jacob was left alone. Step one, everybody say prayer closet. You need to get alone with God. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. Now we understand that man was not a man, but the angel of the Lord. So if we're talking about getting alone and we're talking about getting in our prayer closet, you've got to be real careful with where that prayer closet actually is. Some people I know literally go into their room and get into their literal closet at their house, and that becomes their prayer closet, and that's fine. Or their bedroom is their prayer closet, and that's fine. Or your car is your prayer closet, and that's fine. How do I, how do I help you with this? Where a person is, is every bit as important as who they are. If you're not in the proper place at the proper time, you cannot prosper in the proper manner and the proper way. Where you find yourself is very important. A story about a man who had a pond full of goldfish. Big goldfish, the ones you see at Chinese buffets. I don't think they eat them. That was maybe a bad example, but you understand what I'm talking about. One of those types of goldfishing. It jumps out of the it jumps out of the pond and it lands on the, the, the rock the concrete rock pathway that he's standing on. And I heard him tell this story, I'm not making this up, a true story, another preacher, and he said, uh, he's a very, he's a wealthy man, he's got these ponds in his backyard. He said he was looking at this giant goldfish and he thought, Man, this uh, this goldfish is is worthless right here on my on my beautiful pathway that I've built. It's flopping around, it can't breathe, it doesn't know which way is which. It can't do anything for itself. It's completely uh, debilitated. There's, there's, there's no point. This goldfish might as well not even exist. There's nothing that this goldfish can do right now to benefit itself or anybody else. He said, then I picked the goldfish up and I put it back in the water. And as soon as it hit the water, its brilliance began to show. It took off and it swam better than he could, better than he could ever hope to. It knew exactly where it was going. It knew exactly what it needed to do. What mattered, the difference was the place that it was in. The goldfish is the same goldfish no matter what. It has the same muscles. It has the same brain capacity. It has the same awareness. It wasn't really the goldfish. It was the placement of the goldfish. Without being in the proper place, the brilliance, the plan, the destiny of that fish could never be understood. I'm telling you that. Because when Jacob got alone, I'm trying to, I really want to express to you this morning. How many of you are ready to go to the next level with God? I'm trying to get you there this morning. I'm trying to get there myself. And I want to give you the secret uh, to to get to the next level with God. Uh, Blessings are not the transportation. Scar tissue is the transportation. I'm going to show you what that means here in a second. Blessing is the destination. 
but the transportation are the scars and the pain that come along the way. So when Jacob was left alone, he didn't go to a place where he had to be quiet because somebody was in the next room. He didn't go to a place where he might have been embarrassed to really get alone with God and tell God exactly what he needed. He didn't just go one room over. He didn't get into his car because people on the freeway might think he's nuts. He might end up getting in a wreck. He knew at this point when he was left alone, if he was going to blame, uh, uh, if he was going to gain a blessing from God, he needed to be in a place where he could wrestle with God until the morning. So it's not enough, my friends, to get into your prayer closet, get down on your hands and knees and say, dear God, I really love you. I thank you this morning. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your plan. Father, please bless me. Please show me what you have for my life. Whatever your will is, I will do it. Yada, yada, yada. That is a good prayer. That is a good prayer. And I commend anybody who prays that prayer. And I, and I, and I greatly encourage you to pray to God like that 24 seven. But I also want to encourage you that at least once, at some point in your life, maybe sooner than later, you need to find a place where you literally are alone. You need to get inside of your house when nobody else is there. Maybe you need to turn on a little background music. Maybe you should sit down and read the word for a minute. I don't know what you need to do to get into the spirit. But at some point, if you're really concerned with figuring out who you are and what the destiny is for your life, you've got to get in a place where you can pray and wrestle with God until the morning and never let go. Because the Bible says the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The fervent, effectual prayer. Can I get an amen from somebody? The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What I did before was not a fervent prayer. What I'm doing now is a little bit. You got to get alone with God and you got to beg God and you got to plead with God. You got to ask him to be reminded of the scar tissue on his hands and his feet and the price that was paid and your willingness to walk in that anointing. He says you can be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but I'm not sure if you're ready. You've got to find a place where you can get alone with God, wrestle with the angel of the Lord until the morning comes. And when he finally says, I need to go, you got to grab him tighter and say, I am not letting you go until I get my blessing. You're going to bless me or you're going to kill me, one or the other. Take me to heaven now, I really don't mind. But if you're going to leave me here, you're going to leave me with a blessing. That's what Jacob needed. So he was alone and he wrestled. And when that he saw the angel saw that he prevailed not, he touched the hollow of his thigh and his thigh was out of joint in this wrestling match. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I'm not letting you go except you bless me. And the angel said, well, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, well, no longer shall you be called Jacob. Jacob means supplanter in Hebrew. Deceiver. And even get as far as saying liar, but supplanter, one who deceives and tries to pull the rug out from underneath in order to get his way. Because he came out of his mom's womb, grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. He wanted to get out first, but he couldn't. When he got older, he waited till his dad was kind of blind and he dressed up like Esau. Esau was a hairy man. Jacob was not. So he put on some goat skins. He tried to smell and feel like his brother so that when he 
when his dad reached out to bless him, he would think it was easy. He was trying to pull the rug out. He was still grabbing at that heel. He couldn't find any other way. He wanted it. It wasn't quite the right way. But he wanted it. And for some reason in this story and in so many other stories in the Bible, that seems to be what's important to God. What men want to say is important to God is that we do everything the right way. That we follow all the rules, that we follow all the commandments, that we be as righteous as we can. And at some point, as they say, holier than thou. And if we can do everything in the Bible exactly right, put one foot in front of the other, that the blessings of God will follow us all the days of our life. The unfortunate part is nobody can really do that. Some people have accepted that they can't do it. Some people won't accept that they can't do it. And we're all trying to find our way. And the eyes of the Lord are traveling to and fro throughout the earth. And God is really just looking for somebody that won't quit. He's looking for, there are seven mighty men, all of which are doing something the right way and look the right way to some extent. But he's out in the back of the pasture, not worried about the seven mighty men. He's looking for a little ruddy shepherd boy. He's looking for the David. Where's the one that you haven't even let into the room? Where is the one who nobody knows who his mom is? You'll catch that in scripture if you read David's story. Where is the one that's not allowed to do what all the other ones? Where's the one that doesn't have an inheritance? Where's the one that everybody makes fun of and can't do anything right? Where is the one that will step out of place completely beyond its own authority like a complete idiot and say, I'll go down into that valley and talk to that giant. Where's that guy that everybody else will go? Are you kidding me? You're not even part of the army. Don't go talk to Saul. You have no right to talk to Saul. That's completely out of order. Where is the kid that will run into the tent anyway and say, Saul, I'll go talk to him right now. He's not allowed to say that about the army of the living God. Where's the one that when Saul says, well, here, take my armor, he'll tell the king, I don't want your armor. I'm just going to go. Where's that kid? That's not the right attitude. That's not the right thing to do. That's not proper order. That's what God's looking for. Jacob was the supplanter. He wouldn't quit. He was always trying. He deceived people, and that's not right. But his heart somewhere, somewhere in his heart. David did some bad things. He had a man killed. He committed adultery. He lied. But God said, he's a man after my own heart. He also repented. He also tried. He also dressed up in sackcloth and ashes. He also paid for his sin, but he was never willing to quit. Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go. I didn't let go of my brother's heel and there was nothing he could do for me. I eventually ended up with his birthright, but I'm not letting you go. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, from this day forward, not only are you going to be that guy, but I'm also changing your name. No longer will you have to supplant people. No longer will you have to deceive people. Your name is now called Israel, for as a prince, you have power with God and with men. And you have prevailed. How do you know if you've had a real experience with God? Jacob calls that place Peniel. If you back up and you read before in Jacob's story, the first time God appears to him and makes a promise to him is in a place called Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Peniel means 
turning to God. He doesn't really receive this promise until he turns. So how do you, how do you know that you've had an experience with God? How do you know that it's real? There's some people that you probably know. There's so many testimonies and stories out there. I'm one of them, actually. When I was growing up, all the way up until age 21, if you would have asked me, do I believe in God? I would have said, yeah. If you, if you asked me if I believed in Jesus, I would have said, yeah. If you asked me, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I would have said, probably, maybe, I'm hoping. Can anybody really know? As I was doing everything that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And I had never read the Bible. I didn't even realize that at that point. Um, I would have thought so. Because I went to church a few times. I went down to an altar once or twice. I prayed a prayer. And I thought probably I was saved. What I walked away with was nobody can really know. The best you can do is throw your hands up and say, Jesus, I believe in you. And, and uh, you can carry Underwood it. You know, Jesus, take the wheel and then just go do, your own, go do your own thing and hope for the best. Hope that the vehicle ends up where you want it to end up. Uh, I don't know. I didn't know any more than that. Then I had an experience right before I turned 21. I had an experience with God. In a 48-hour period, he delivered me of some things that there's no way I would have been able to set down on my own. In a 48-hour period, I was living with my sister. In a 48-hour period, she was freaked out beyond belief. She was on the phone with my parents. She didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was going on. They thought maybe I joined a cult. They eventually came out to the church because they weren't sure, and they wanted to make sure. Six months later, my sister got saved. A few months later, my parents were getting baptized. A few months later, other things were happening. Uh, by the end of a six or seven month period, I literally had zero of the friends that I had before. And that wasn't by my own choice. My point and what I'm trying to tell you is that if you get alone with God and you wrestle with God and God has really touched you and God has really set you on that path and you spend enough time with him to begin to step into your own destiny, the way that you'll know that you actually did that and that actually happened is you're going to walk a little differently from that point on than you did before you met God. So Jacob walked in like this. He wrestled with God. He got his destiny with God. He got blessed from God. And he walked away like this. A little limp in the hip. Touched his hip. The sinew shrank. The gangster limp. She limped. <laughs> and, it, and the Bible says the rest of the days of his life, he never walked the same. He never walked the same. So if Cody has an experience with God and two weeks later his friends can't tell, he might want to question that experience that he had with God. I'm using him as an example because he obviously is walking a lot differently. And it wasn't just two weeks ago, I'm just saying. He's walking a lot differently than he did before we met him, before he came and accepted the Lord. I can point out all kinds of people in this room if you wrestle with God, if you have an experience with God, now I want you to understand this as well. You might be on this path. You might be walking that Christian walk, but you might not be limping with the limp that God is going to give you before it's all said and done. Your, your limp can increase. Your walk can change as you're walking. So although you might have really been saved, although you might really be walking with God, you might still want to take the opportunity to get alone with God and figure out beyond salvation, O oh Lord, what have you called me to do? Let him touch your thigh and see what happens. You walk away with a limp. Throughout the Bible, 
God uses what we call anthropomorphic terms to try to explain to us things that he can't explain to us any other way. What we mean by anthropomorphic terms is God will use an example of something that you know and understand to teach you about something that you could otherwise no way truly know or understand. But in in an anthropomorphic metaphor or term, it doesn't mean that what is being said is actually happening verbatim. For instance, if the Bible says, and God's hand was upon Jeremiah all the days of his life, it does not mean that as Jeremiah walks around, God's hand is on his shoulder everywhere that he goes. It's an anthropomorphic term. You can't understand. You can't see God's hand in this world. So he's given it to you in a way that you can understand that it follows him all the days of his life. And speaking of Jeremiah, we're going to go back to chapter 18. The quality thing about the word of God and the amazing thing about anthropomorphic terminology and the way that the Bible is written and the theology behind it is uh, there are there are different groups of people within the body of Christ. There are different groups of people uh, within the world in general uh, in in religiosity, if you will. There's a grouping of people called Gnostics or people that try to approach spiritual things through Gnosticism, which means it's based on knowledge. And the more knowledge they can attain and the more they can understand, then the, the more that we know about God, the closer we can draw to God, to God and, uh, and to our, the destiny for our own lives and all those good things. And on the surface, that sounds like it might be correct. But really, in the, in the word of God and the kingdom of God, nothing could be further from the truth. Because God is just. And if God is just, where would that leave those of us that may have lower IQs or learning disabilities or don't have the opportunity to go to a place where we can gain the knowledge that some other people have the opportunity to gain, that that would therefore mean we could never draw as close to God as somebody who had a higher capacity, a higher IQ, a higher brain power, or a higher education, and that would not be very just. God, in all of his justification and all of his justice, has chosen to deliver to us a word in which He does not have to fully explain himself. He chooses to reveal himself instead. And to reveal something, you need to teach in a way of anthropomorphic terms, analogies, and parables. Which is why Jesus Christ was known for teaching in parables. Because he's not trying to reach out to the intellectually superior. He's trying to reach out to the poor in spirit that are willing to gain a revelation of God by humbling themselves to the examples that he has to show us to accept things that we could not otherwise understand, which is hard for the human brain to do, because in order to accept something that you that you didn't understand before, you first have to accept that you didn't know it or you were wrong about it. In other words, anytime you learn something, you're admitting that you were dumber right before you learned it. And that is that kind of takes a shot to the pride a little bit, especially when it's a life lesson, especially when that knowledge tells you that you might not be good enough, that you might fall short in some areas, that you might not understand the most important thing in life. Just remember that. He's not a God that likes to explain. He's a God that likes to reveal. Going into Jeremiah 18, that's important. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, And there I will cause thee to hear my words. 
God is doing a special work with Jeremiah in this chapter. As we read on, you see very quickly that in order to deliver his word to Jeremiah, he's actually not going to use any words at all. He's going to send him down to the potter's house and he wants him to understand it's not about what's coming out of the potter's mouth. It's about what's going on in the potter's hands. I'm going to send you down there, Jeremiah, my prophet who I speak directly to. And in order to teach you a great lesson, I want you to remain silent. And your teacher is going to remain silent. And I want you to observe a truth about the God that you serve. He said, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Jeremiah says, then I went down to the potter's house and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. The vessel that he made of clay, I want to stop right there and point this out. The Bible tells us, you and I in the New Testament, that we are that vessel. That we are made of clay. It says, who are you to turn around and ask the potter, why have you made me thus? You are a vessel made for his glory. Amen. Amen. Everybody say, I I am am a vessel. vessel. If you are a vessel, that means that once upon a time, even right now, you were placed upon the wheel of a potter. What happens when Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house is he sees him take a lump of clay. Everybody say Adam. He sees him take a lump of clay and he places it a wet, moist, unshapen lump of clay that has no value, kind of like that goldfish on the rock. And he places it on the wheel and he begins to spin it. The first thing that you need to understand is the moment that you decide that you're going to give your life completely over to God, that you're going to stop being the master of your own destiny He places you upon a wheel and things begin to spin out of control. Or at least it feels like it's out of control. But he's shaping you. He's molding you. Things are going around and around and around and you have no control. But in all actuality, because God is in control, you're not spinning out of control. You're spinning in control. But at the same time, you're spinning. You're spinning and there's no stopping. Sometimes it's a little confusing. It's funny how when you're a child, remember Paul said at some point, I have to stop talking like a child, thinking like a child, and acting like a child. I've got to grow up. I've got to act like a man. When you're younger, like I watch my little kids, especially Tristan, little three-year-old Tristan, he loves to find a place in the room and just spin, 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 spin until he falls down. And then when he falls down, he gets right back up. He kind of wobbles a little bit, and then he finds another place. Once he said, hey, Daddy, spin with me. I already knew. I'm no longer a child. I know this is not going to go well. Uh, I tried to spin with him. I made like three rotations and then I was out for a couple days. Like things start spinning out of control. You don't realize that when you're younger, youth blinds you to an extent to these sorts of things. But as you get older, you start realizing really quickly the timing, the rotation, the speed in which this wheel is going around. When you're a kid, it takes forever to get to the next birthday. When you're an adult, you're like, it's my birthday again? Already? You stop celebrating birthdays, you just start having them. There's a, there's a time when it's your birthday, somebody goes out and buys 
the number of candles to put on the cake. We're all at a point now where those candles have turned into numbers because you can't buy that many candles, so they just started making the candle into like a three and a four and a five. And it comes around, it's not exciting, and it seems like it's not that anything is spinning faster, but it's that you're more aware. And now that you're more aware, I want to share this scripture with you in Jeremiah 18. Remember, it's an anthropomorphic scripture. God is using something we can understand to tell us something that we cannot understand. When I went down to the potter's house, he wrought a work upon the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. There's two ways to take this. And it's very, very important. Everybody say, I I am am a vessel. Can I tell you something, a secret about God that uh, I thought I knew and I'm starting to know a whole lot better and starting to accept a whole lot better. And actually, it's turning in from something that I knew to something that I need. And you need to know what I feel like I'm beginning to know that I need which is God is irrevocably, ultimately, without a shadow of a doubt, in control. The wheel that you are on is out of control. But God is in control. Now, we cannot understand when we read the word of God how he could possibly do or allow some of the things that he can do or allow. But I know this, that he says, my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And who can know the mind of God? See, we can read scriptures and we can memorize a few verses and we can speak them into certain situations. But we can't make sense out of what God did with David and Bathsheba. We can't make sense how God took that situation where we could have spoken a a multiplicity of scriptures and shown David exactly what he needed to do, exactly how much of a piece of junk he was, exactly how he needed to step down and step back, exactly where he needed to go, but we never could have called out that a few years later, out of the womb of Bathsheba and the marriage of David, that he would produce Solomon, and that Solomon would go forth and build that temple, and that he would be the wisest man that ever lived, and that through that lineage and that heritage would one day come the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ himself. I cannot explain to you how the Bible speaks against prostitution and allows Jesus to come through a line of harlots. I don't know how that works. I can't explain to you the mind of God on everything. I know that there are scriptures we want to speak directly into situations, but we are on this wheel, and we believe that he's in control, and we know that his ways are higher than our ways, and nothing happens outside the allowance of God. He has a plan. He is the master, and he is in control. The vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Everybody say scars. Two ways to take this. You can have a a master craftsman that's making anything that you would, linens, clothing, we'll use as an example. If they have the right equipment, and they have the right material, and they have the knowledge, and they have the skill, they can produce a masterpiece. They can go through an entire work and not make a single mistake. Yet when it's all said and done, 
there can still be a scarring or a mar on the end result, not because of the person or the craftsman, but because there was a flaw in the material that maybe was before unseen. So I'm, I'm going to approach this scripture with you real quickly theologically. Theologically speaking, this is a clue as to who you are in relation to the line of Adam, in relation to Adam and Eve, and subsequently the entire population of the earth. God took that dirt, God took that clay, he made a man, and everything was perfect. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and that man became a living soul. But because of sin, entering in, the light went out, and the raw material became marred. And from that marred and scarred foundation, everything that came forth from that point would also be marred to a degree. Of course, this is proven out in Scripture when it says, by one man centered into the world, and by one man sin was defeated. I'm paraphrasing, but that's in the book of Romans. That's pretty much what the book of Romans is all about. However, there is another way to take this Scripture, and it's not that the master craftsman began working with flawed material But as the material was in his hands, it became marred by his own hands, is another way to take that scripture. Either way, there's a certain flaw in the material. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. So, and that's the word that I want to focus on right now, that word so. Now, when we look at the fact that Jesus said, He didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. When we look at Jacob's story, how he wrestled with the angel of the Lord and the angel touched his thigh and the hollow of his thigh and he walked away with a limp. When we look at stories like this all throughout the word of God, it becomes apparent that possibly it is true that in the hands of the potter, we become scarred and we become marred. And maybe that's for a purpose. Maybe that's for a reason. Either way. I want to point out the goodness of the God that we serve. The vessel that he made of clay, everybody say that's me, was marred in the hands of the potter. So, so, all of creation hangs on that word. Your future hangs on that word, that one little insignificant word, so. As soon as Adam sinned, as soon as Eve ate that fruit, all the angels in heaven were watching. Obviously, God himself was watching. With an audience of angels, he held a vessel of clay in his hand that was marred, that was broken, that was messed up. And for a few thousand years, he dwelt on so. So what? At this point, the angels probably had a pool going. What's he going to do now? Drop it, throw it in the trash bin of time, act as if it never happened. I think he's a little angry. I think he's going to crush it into powder and just let it float away in the vacuum of space. I think he's going to 
just let it go and start over. They're waiting, and God's just sitting there thousands of years. So, so what do we do now? It's also a scripture for you and me. In the palm of your hand sits something that is marred, something that is no longer any good, something that no longer looks the way that you want it to look. This relationship, this friendship is not working out the way that I thought. This person is not who they said they were, so different metaphor. This marriage is not working out the way that I thought it was going to work. This person isn't who I thought they were. They don't look the way that I thought they were going to look, so different metaphor. This job is not working out the way that I thought it was going to work. This job is not doing everything that I thought it was going to do for my life, so different metaphor. This career is not panning out the way that I thought it was going to pan out. This path in life is not looking the way that I was promised it was going to look. So, different metaphor. These children are not doing what I thought they were going to do. They are not learning what I wanted them to learn. They are not becoming who I wanted them to become. So, different metaphor. This church is not looking the way that I thought this church was going to look. It is not becoming the thing that I promised it was, that I was promised it was going to become. It's not everything that I saw in my mind that it was going to be. So, so what? So what? What did he do? He made it again. He made it again. This actually is very confusing. I can understand how a craftsman can take a, a fresh piece of clay that's a little messed up, put it on the wheel, clean it up, and make something out of it, make something great out of it. I can understand how somebody could do that, but it takes a true master to take a vessel that's already almost complete, that is complete enough that you can see the marring and the scarring, that has hardened to a point where it's almost usable, but it doesn't look right. It takes a master to continue to work on that piece of pottery, that piece of clay, and make it again. Here's the thing. He said, I made it again. What is it? It is the marred piece of clay. Everybody say, that's me. Everybody say, God, God is, is not, not done. done. He's not done with you. He's not done with you yet. He's not done with you right now. You are marred in his hands. The important part is that you are in his hands. I know the scarring doesn't feel good. I know the marring doesn't look nice. I know some of his tools are abrasive. I know some of his ways are uncomfortable, but you're in his hands. He's not letting you off that wheel. You will be marred, but you will be better. He is not done with you yet. Here's where it gets confusing. He made it again another. What does that even mean? He made it, everybody say me, again another. How can it, how, how can it be it and another? At the same time, how can it be it and another? Everybody say, it looks like me, but it's not me. It is me, but it's not me. How can it be it and another? Well, there's a surface level concept that we all understand, the concept of being born again. 
And if I was preaching to you about salvation and things of that nature, that's where we take it. But I want to take it to another place beyond that. Those that have been saved, those that have been born again. The Bible says when you're born again, you're born again of the spirit. It doesn't actually change your fleshly appearance. You are still who you were before, but in the spirit, you've been born again and you're a different person. But there is still that human nature that hangs on to a certain point. And even though you're a born again child of God, you're going to walk into some dark places. You're going to trip over some things that you didn't see. You're going to run into people that don't treat you right. You're going to end up marred and you're going to end up scarred. And at some point, you're going to want to quit because that wheel that's spinning in control is going to feel like it's out of control. The scars that you are starting to gain are not the scars that you foresaw in your own future. You don't like the placement. You don't like the timing. It doesn't feel right. But I can promise you this. If you do not quit, if you do not step back, if you do not step down, the potter is still there. The wheel seems like it's out of control, but his hands are right there. He is going to make you again another. You're going to walk in the back door one day and we're going to say, that's Neil, but that's not Neil. I mean, it looks like Neil. I know that it's Neil, but Neil is different. God has done something different with Neil. Well, these aren't the people that Neil was with before, but it's still Neil and God is still doing a work. I believe he said, my giftings, Neil, my callings, Neil, are without repentance. So I don't care what Neil went through. I wasn't the one that was in control of that wheel. I am not the potter. Some of the things don't look right, David. Some of the things don't sound right, Bathsheba. But God isn't done. He still has a Solomon. He still needs you. If you'll repent, if you'll step forward, if you'll say, yes, I'm marred. Yes, I'm scarred. Yes, I'm imperfect. And I'm not trying to get you to justify that. But I was marred in the hands of the potter. And he is making me again another. Why would he do that? It ends like this. It seemed good to the potter to make it. That's it. You are not God. I am not God. Some of the things in my life, I would not have chosen for my life. At all. I fought hard to make sure they didn't change. I don't know how to tell you what was God's will, what is God's will exactly, but I know one thing. I'm still in his hands. You're still in his hands. I don't mind the scars. I don't like when they're happening. I'm going to tell you a story about the real Thomas that will show you why I don't mind them and you shouldn't mind them. I'm going to go to John 11:16. Everybody say scars. Thomas is, I think, erroneously referred to throughout the scripture as doubting Thomas because of one statement that he made. On the surface, to some Christians that I would say maybe have not experienced the marring that can take place in the hands of the potter. Thomas seems like a doubter. And I understand that because I used to call him Doubting Thomas too, but I want to help you this morning. Can I help you? Yes, sir. That's what I'm talking about. Can I help the rest of you? Okay. Verse uh, 16 of John 11 is one of the first times you hear from Thomas. This is, I I want to show you the nature of who this guy is. Jesus is being told right now about the death of his best friend, Lazarus. And Jesus says about Lazarus, I'm glad that I wasn't there when he died because it wouldn't have helped you to believe the way it's about to help you believe. Paraphrasing. When you see the end of the story, that's what he meant. 
So they're all mourning because Lazarus was this big pillar in the church. And everybody knew that he was Jesus Christ's best friend. And they loved him. And Thomas speaks up because he doesn't, nobody understands what Jesus meant at this point. I'm glad that I wasn't there because you wouldn't believe. And Thomas said, which is called Didymus, says unto his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. This is the nature of the heart of this man, Thomas. That's a big heart. Like Lazarus died. Jesus is upset. Everybody's like, I don't know what to do. Thomas is like, forget it. Let's just all go die with him. Let's just, I mean, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? His, his faith wasn't shaken. A faithless man doesn't approach death without fear. He figured this was part of God's plan. And if that's the best we can do, that's the best we can do. Let's go do it together. He's the only one that said that. John chapter 14, verse 5. Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples that where he goes, he'll certainly come again. He goes to prepare a place for them. He'll come back and retrieve them. And he says, you know where I'm going and you know the way, but they don't yet. All of the disciples, okay, this is you in the classroom. The teacher is explaining something that even the teacher knows nobody understands. And everybody in the classroom is just sitting back going, if we don't ask her, maybe we'll get out on time. If we don't raise our hand, maybe we won't get any homework. We'll just act like we understand it. Please don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. And then Thomas goes, hey. You're like, oh, Thomas. And nobody understands it. But Thomas is like, uh, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And now they all feel dumb because Jesus is looking around and they, they can't hide. They're like, yeah, we don't know either. We, don't know. <laughs> we weren't going to say anything. Uh, Thomas is really concerned. The rest of them were willing to walk away and look smart. Like, yeah, we know. They don't know. <laughs> Thomas was truly concerned. He was like, no, 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 wait, wait. I don't know. I don't know. Can you do, get, like give me a map or something? This is Thomas. It's not doubting Thomas. It's faithful Thomas. Faithful Thomas understood something that I think some of the other disciples didn't understand. John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the mark of the nails and put my finger into the mark of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, the disciples were within. Thomas was with them. Jesus, the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger. Behold my hands. Reach here your hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. What he was saying to Thomas, what Thomas was saying is, you can tell me all the good things. Go ahead and tell me he rose from the dead. That's great. Go ahead and tell me he's walking around. Go ahead and tell me about the miracles. Go ahead and reiterate the story about the loaves and the fishes. I remember the peace be still. I remember walking on the water. I remember how powerful he was. I understand all that and I love him. But right now I need him. Right now I need to know. And your stories about blessing and favor are not convincing me. What I need to understand that this is real I need the scars. I need the scars. I need the proof that he overcame something. I need the proof that we can survive. Scars are the roadmaps to your destiny. They are the reminders of where you've been along the way. They are the transportation to that place. All the blessings in the world sometimes can be forgotten. You can rationalize how God blessed you. Maybe you went and scratched off a lottery ticket and you won $15,000 and you went, God is good. And then a few months later, your life looks like junk and you've relegated that story to pure luck. Well, I just scratched off the ticket and it was at first it was God. 
Now it's not, and you can't prove it. There's no residue. Nobody can ever convince Jesus Christ or anybody that saw him that he was not crucified and resurrected because it was not easily thrown away. He walked into the room and there's proof on his hands. There's proof on his side. There's proof on his feet. Scars cannot be overlooked. Scars are are evidence that something has been overcome, but they will never be overlooked. We learn so little from peace. It is said it's easy to forget sweetness. We have no scars for happiness, but we learn so little. So while you're on that wheel, while you're spinning in control, while he's got his tools on you and you feel the nicks and you feel the scratches and you're starting to bruise, you've got to remember he's making you into what he has called you to be and he will never let you forget. He wants you to look in the mirror and remember who you are and where you came from. Happiness is fleeting. Sweetness is for a moment. Scars are forever. We're going to end with this verse here in the worship team and go ahead and come up in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. Go with me on this one. This, is, uh, this one stretches just a tad. Romans 5.14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure, everybody say figure, of him that was to come. Here's something very interesting. In John 20.25 where it says, Except I shall see, Thomas says, Except I shall see in his hands the print or the mark or the scar of the nails. That word is the same Greek word in chapter 5, verse 14 of Romans, where you just said figure. Over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That word figure is the same word as scar. What does that mean to you and to me? Let me try to explain this. I've only ever explained this to myself in my head, so I don't know how it's going to sound. might not make any sense. God was working with perfect material, but that material, that material was flawed from the beginning. It was flawed with something called choice, and that choice ended in sin, and that sin resulted in a marring, and that marring was a scarring that was reflective, it says here in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, of him that was to come. Of him that was to come. When something is marred, it means that it's broken to a degree. It means that it's imperfect. There's a gap to be bridged between us and heaven. That's where we want to end up for eternity is living with him in heaven. Yes, that gap is the gap that exists between perfection and imperfection. We know that the Bible says that heaven is a perfect place. So how is it that imperfect people are allowed in? If an imperfect person ever once was allowed into a perfect place, it would cease to be perfect. That imperfection would spread rather quickly. So how do we bridge that gap? God looked down on the earth, sitting on his throne of heaven for a few thousand years with marred clay in his hand and that word so that we talked about. So what am I going to do? Well, these people are broken. These people are scarred. 
They can't come in. I have one choice. Well, two choices. One choice if I'm not going to quit. Because of their marring, because of their scarring, there's no way I can possibly let them into my presence. It won't work. And heaven will become imperfect. I've given them just about everything that I have to give. I gave them this planet. I created a paradise called Eden. I gave them the trees for shade, the mountains for landscape, the rivers for water, every herb of the field, meat for food. I gave them companionship, a man and a woman. I gave them dominion. I gave them the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. I gave them all of these amazing things. It's that I created out of nothing and I gave it all to them. Now they're marred. And all I really wanted was to live with them and for them to live with me. But now we can't live with each other because what fellowship has light with darkness, perfection with imperfection, if you will. So what's my one choice? God says, I have, have one more thing, just one more thing that I haven't given them. And this is it. If this doesn't work, it's all over. Marred in the hands of the potter. So he decides, as the angels watch with bated breath, I'm going to give them myself. I'm going to wrap myself in flesh. Reflective of their marred nature, but not marred. See, John chapter 3, verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not die but have everlasting life. But progressively through the Bible, you can go to 1 John 3.16 and you can go to 1 Timothy 3.16 and what you end up reading is that God so loved the world that he gave his own life as you progress in knowledge and understanding the Godhead and what it truly is. God wrapped himself in flesh and he came down and he was unmarked with sin. Jesus Christ was the model of perfection. On the potter's wheel, he was not marred. He was a perfect piece of pottery. But in order to redeem those that had been marred, he decided to partake in the marring. So where he didn't deserve it, and without any sin on his resume, he took the ultimate scarring, to his hands, to his feet, to his back, to his side, to his front, to his face. And Isaiah tells us that by his stripes, everybody say scars, we are healed. It's not by his perfection. It's not by his miracles. God bless him and thank him for it. It's not by the blessings that he pours out from heaven. God bless him and thank him for it. It's not by the multitude of positive things that we can say about the scriptures None of that results in our healing. It is the scars. It is the stripes on his back. We get to enter into heaven because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He that was never going to be cursed was hung on a tree and became a cursing so that we could gain the blessing. There was a gap that was bridged. And I'm trying to tell you this morning, stand to your feet. That gap was not bridged with a well-paved road. That gap was bridged with a bloody scar, and you should thank God for it each and every day. And when your husband walks into your presence, and he's messed up, and he's marred, 
and he's got a scar from his actions, I hope you can take a minute to see the reflection of Jesus Christ in that. Marred in the hands of the potter. And when your wife walks into the bedroom and she's crying and she's scarred and she's marred, be it by her own hand or somebody else's, I hope for a moment before you try to fix that problem, you can see the reflection of Jesus Christ in that marring. Because you're on the wheel, she's on the wheel, your friends are on the wheel, your family is on the wheel, I'm on the wheel, your church is on the wheel. Don't turn and run when things start to get marred. Stand and believe because they're marred in the hands of the potter. If you don't know how else to handle it, just remember that that marring, that scarring is reflective of the fact that we are in his hands. And let that be enough. God loves you. God is for you. God is not against you. And he will never let you have peace absent from the truth, absent from salvation, whatever it takes. He wants you with him in the end. When you get to heaven, you can forget this sermon. You won't need scars anymore. But between now and then, reflect on that and reflect on the God that loves you. Amen.